the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Everyone could hear us? Yeah? Don't need a microphone. All right. So we'll finish off back to basics today, um, talking about the Eucharist. Forgive the length of the handout. We probably won't go through all of them. I think I just got a little bit carried away um, as I was putting this one together. Um, but we'll see how we go. So the first week we spoke about creation out of nothing. The second week we spoke about how we're creating the image and likeness of God and what that means. The third week we spoke about salvation and Marco took us through the different ways that different Christian groups understand salvation. Yesterday we looked at the church. Last week, sorry, we looked at the church, how we understand the church as canonia, and then from that, how we to understand um, church orders, so hierarchy in the church, and then some implications for the canonia, um, such as looking out for each other, not leaving straight away after the liturgy, and when we give feedback, we give it from within the canonia. But um, that was all last week. So we thought we'll finish up by speaking about the Eucharist, because the Eucharist is the center of um, the Orthodox Church. And uh, let me start off with a story, okay? So there was, a, um, in one of the monasteries, there was the elder of the monastery. He went, um, he, there was a Lenten liturgy, but he was a bit unwell, so he couldn't pray. So he was just walking around the monastery and he saw a young man who was in the guest house. And he said to him, Habibi, go have communion. The liturgy is on. He goes, no, Abuna, I'm sorry, I haven't confessed in ages. And then he goes, it's okay, go have communion. He goes, Abuna, it's Lent, um, and I actually I'm not fasting the fast. He goes, it's okay. He goes, no, Abuna, this morning I had uh, eggs and a cigarette like a couple of hours ago. It's just, it's just not happening. And Abuna goes, no, it's okay. He, Abuna felt something was pushing him. He goes, no, go have communion. And he left him. He didn't know if the guy was going to go or not. He went about doing his thing in the monastery, went up to his cell for his private time, and then later the monks knocked on his door and said, Abuna, come see the man that you told to have communion. He's sitting by the relics of the saint of the monastery and he's crying. So he went and saw him and he found that he became instantly very repentful and he said, I hadn't had communion for years. And he made a confession, repented, had a confession and he went home. Okay. Next day, the priest gets a call that he's gone. He's a young man. They call him like Taishenta. He passed away. And I think we sometimes underestimate the power of the Eucharist. What's scary sometimes is that sometimes um, we could fall into the temptation of attending every youth meeting and every social event. Okay, but our Eucharistic or liturgical attendance is a bit lax. That's a bit scary. Okay, or. Um, if there's a social event at church, or even if I'm a servant, I might be there on time. But when it comes to the liturgy, the question that we generally ask is, yes, I know the liturgy starts at nine, but what time is the gospel? Okay, so we set the bar. And that's, that's quite scary. So today we're going to look at the Eucharist. We're also going to look a bit at the liturgy and see why it is the center. And please feel free to add or ask questions or discuss. Like I said last week, the microphone is, only covers here. So if you speak there, no one's going to hear you. So if you're microphone shy, like me, don't worry. Okay, so from the top, the word Eucharist is used because it's the all-embracing meaning of the Lord's banquet and that of thanksgiving to God in Christ and the Holy Spirit for all that he has done in making, saving and glorifying the world. Does anyone know what the word Eucharist means? Thanksgiving or thanks. And it has several it's interpreted several ways. It could mean the sacrament itself, the body and blood. It could also mean the, what we do during the liturgy. 
we give thanks, and it could also refer to the liturgy itself. Okay? I think we all know this, but biblical references that speak about how the Eucharist is the true body and blood of Christ, and that it's not symbolic, and it's not something that's optional um, in the sense of it's not something that's like an add-on. It's an essential part of our faith. Matthew 26, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, took bread, and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. Four verbs. Took, blessed, broke, gave to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now I highlighted four verbs there. Okay? Took, blessed, broke, gave. Why do you think I highlighted them? We do them in the liturgy. We take bread, we bless, we break, and we give. So the four acts that Christ does, we reenact that in the liturgy. And then later in the first early Christian community in Corinthians, in Corinth, sorry, St. Paul says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Okay? There's obviously other references in the New Testament. I just pecked out a few. Back to the Gospels. John chapter 6, 53 to 54. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And that same passage, but in a bigger context, different translation. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. So, very clearly, Christ explaining that the body and blood are the true body and blood of Christ. However, there are a lot of Christian denominations that see this as symbolism. And they have access to exactly the same Bible. So how can you interpret this in different ways? Okay. So you might speak to certain Protestant denominations that could say, no, this is symbolic. Same with baptism. Why? Because it's in the Bible. And then you say, yes, but our 2,000-year tradition has read this verse to mean the body and the blood. Okay, yeah, but we just read the Bible. So how do we understand all that? So a bit, a bit of a side topic. Who put the Bible together? The church. So what's older, the Bible or the church? The church. So the Bible is part of the tradition of the church. It was put together by the church to be read through the eyes of the church. Okay? And for 2,000 years, the church has read this to literally mean the real body and the blood of Christ, as seen in the early church and throughout its 2,000-year history. And there are a few quotes from the first couple of centuries that confirm that for us. The Bible is not a book that was put together to be read in isolation and interpreted on my own, but it was put together by the church to be read through the church. Really important for us. Just recently, I've come across this uh, argument, and I don't know an answer to it. So when Jesus said, if your eye um, stumbles, you cause you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you, is that literal? No. He eats my flesh and drinks my blood. Is that literal? Yes. Okay, so how do we have a measure for which we have to go away? 
So, because the Bible was put together by the church, it is read in the community of the church. And we know from the very beginning that when Christ instituted the Eucharist, the apostles and the first Christian communities all confirmed that this is the real body and the real blood of Christ. That's how we've always read that. Okay? Let's take a bit of a, uh, a detour and talk about the liturgy a little bit, and then we'll go back to some themes in the Eucharist. So the themes that we're going to look at are, am I worthy to have communion? And what if I feel I'm not? What do I do? And then, what are the effects of the Eucharist, and, how, and where are these effects found in the liturgy book itself? Okay? So there's some, they're a bit long. Let's just see how we go. Okay. The first one. So liturgy is translated as the work of the people. Okay, not the work of the priest, but all of us together. That's why the liturgy has three roles. The priest, who offers the sacrifice. The deacon, who does what? He gives instructions. Stand up for prayer. You see it, stand up. Pray for the peace of the one holy Catholic Church. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Attend, as in be attentive. Worship. So the deacon's job is just to give instructions. Okay? And our job as people is to pray. What does he say? Pray for the peace of the one holy Catholic Church. So what am I supposed to do when I'm standing in the congregation? Please God, remember the peace of the church. And that's it. Okay? So the liturgy is the work of the people. The original meaning of liturgy is that it meant an action by which a group of people became something corporately which they had not been as a mere collection of individuals. A whole greater than the sum of its parts. Wow. This is Father Alexander Schmemann. Liturgy means more than common prayer. It means corporate action in which everyone takes an active part, is a participant and not only an attendant. Isn't that nice? So when we come to liturgy, we're not watching. There's a difference between worship and entertainment. We're not here to be entertained. We, as we said before, orthodox worship is selfless. We leave our ego at the door. We come in, we worship, and we leave changed. Okay? Sometimes we might fall into the trap of like I said last week, evaluating the liturgy. It's too long. It's too short. It's too quick. It's too slow. Deacons are too loud. They're too noisy. They're too quick. Too many hymns. Sermon was too long. Too short. Didn't understand it. Too hot. Too many people having communion. Too many people talking. Okay? You know what I mean. Okay? The nature of this action is both corporate and personal. It's corporate because through the unity and faith of its participants, it realizes the reality of the church, that is, the presence of Christ among those who believe in him. It's personal because this reality is every time conveyed to me, given me for my personal edification, for my own growth in grace. And this personal connection we'll touch on later is really, really important. All right, next page. St. John Chrysostom writing in the 4th century. Where do you stand in the presence of the king... Were you to stand in the presence of the king, you would not even dare. But when you stand in the presence of, our, of the Lord of all, you do not stand there in fear and trembling. You laugh, provoking him to anger. Do you not see that by this conduct you provoke him more by your very sins? God is not wont to be as angry against those who sin, as against those who, even who, so, who when they have sinned, feel neither sorrow or regret. Nothing so becomes a church as silence and good order. Noise belongs to theatres, baths, public processions, marketplaces. But where doctrines and such doctrines are the subject of teaching, there should be stillness, quiet, calm reflection, and a haven of much repose. These things I beseech and I entreat. All right. Does that make sense? And I've got a bit of a rant, but forgive me. Okay. 
Has anyone ever walked into a Catholic church before or an Eastern Orthodox church? What's the difference when you just walk into a service as Catholic or Eastern Orthodox? Noise. Noise. Quiet respect to the place that you're in. Okay? Yeah, someone says, oh, there might not be as many people there, etc. But let's... Okay, if I may, tell me if I'm right or wrong. We're all of Egyptian heritage. Okay. Is Egypt an organized place? No. Okay, that's reality. Egypt's not an organized place. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of... <laughs> yes. There's a lot of organized... Yeah, I've got to watch out. <laughs> okay. But it's, it's not an organized place. So if I'm not organized in public life in Egypt, like it sometimes a bit filters through the church. Now we're in Australia. Australia's an organized country. We all go to organized workplaces, right? We go to organized schools. We go to organized homes where everything is clean and silent and respected. Shouldn't when we come to church that happen? Sorry? Yeah, and we've got to ask ourselves, is that becoming, as St. John Chrysostom says, of the house of God? Like, and the, the general principle is be hard on yourself, soft on others. So I'm talking to myself. Yeah, okay. For example, do I come to church on time the same way that I go to other places on time? Like if I'm watching a movie in the cinemas, if it says a 3.30 movie, I don't go at 3.30. Go buy a ticket, get some popcorn, have a seat. Okay. If you're coming to go into a friend's house for dinner, you go on time and you go prepared. If you're going to work, you go on time. Why, when it comes to the liturgy, do we see a stream of people entering as the liturgy goes on? Okay? Someone might say, but everyone's at a different spiritual level. You know, in our diocese at least, Sunday liturgies are two hours. We know that. So Edna released something a few years ago saying two hour liturgies on Sunday in English. Is two hours that long? Not really. Okay, that's, most movies don't go for that long. Okay, when we walk into church, sometimes there's a bit of, especially with the deacons, sometimes there's a bit of, oh, walking late, have a Tony that's not, I'm sorry for going on a rant, but you know, since we're here, Tony is not ironed. Do you go anywhere, like when you go to a university graduation, right? How prim and proper does everyone look? You know, when you're standing in front of the King of Kings, we should all be prim and proper in the sense of, if I'm a deacon, my tunic should be crisp, you know, right out of the, the Makwa, huh? Once in your life. You know, there's actually a priest told us once pray every liturgy as if it's your first and last. Pray every liturgy, and that's tough, but pray every liturgy as if it's your first and last. St. John Chrysostom, there's a, this comes out of a longer sermon. What happened was there was a feast day for a saint, and not many people came. They got really upset. And the next week, he gave him this big sermon. He's like, ah, oh, so when there's a horse race, Okay, all the gladiators are there. You run to the arena, and it rains, and they they're pulling you out. They're like, go home. But when there's a bit of a shower and some mud on the road, you're like, can't go to church. He goes, if I was to ask you about the famous horse riders and charioteers, if I say it, and wrestlers, you will answer with eloquence greater than the orators. So for today's setting, it's like. If I asked myself about footy, not personally that much, but about footy, I'll be able to tell you everything. You know, who's going to win, the percentages, stats, who was the best player 50 years ago, who won this premiership. But then he goes, if I ask you who is Elijah or Obadiah, you say our ears are getting heavy and you start to yawn. That, honestly, when I read that, that, that cut, that hurt. You know, because he's really 
tapping a chord there. You know? He's like, if a dancer or a musician invited you, you would run. But when church is on, do you run? Now we've got to really ask ourselves something. If the Eucharist is the center of our lives, and it seems that we come a bit late, we treat the church like, oh, I'll just leave a cup here, I'll leave a Nishar here, I'll leave a Lefafa here, I walk in late to Abuna with my Tonya, and say, Abuna, could you please do it late? I'll, I have a Tonya that's a bit short, I'll just talk, I'll take out my phone during the service, okay? Is that becoming of the house of God? Let's take it a step further. If you invited one of your mates from work to church, and he saw all that, what would they say? It's a bit weird. Right? Anyway, I'll stop, I'll stop there. Next quote by St. John Chrysostom. Whenever you hear the words, let us pray all together, Shlil, whenever you see the curtains drawn up, then consider that heaven is let down from above and that the angels are descending. We believe that we are literally in heaven, not symbolically, literally in heaven when we enter into the church. And then he says something nice. But you will say to me, I'm a sinner, I cannot come. How many times sometimes do we say to ourselves, I don't deserve to go. Look what he says. Then if you're a sinner, come that you may cease to be one. Remember what we said last week, the church is a hospital. If you're sick, where do you go? Your natural belonging place is a hospital. I'm sick. If you're also sick, join me on Sunday. Okay, that's what we're saying last week. Tell me, who is there among men without sin? Do you not know that even those close to the altar are wrapped in sin? For they are clothed with flesh, enfolded in a body. As we also who are sitting and teaching upon this throne are entangled in sin. He's trying to say, don't you know that the priest standing at the altar with the deacons are also sinners? Okay. And we're going to talk about worthiness in a second. And then I'll just go halfway through the paragraph. You have entered the church, O man. You have been held worthy of the company of Christ. And listen to this. Go not out from it unless you be sent. He's trying to say, unless you are kicked out, don't leave. What are you going to say to God if you don't come to church but you weren't kicked out? For if you go out from without being sent, you'll be asked the reason as if you were a runaway. You spend the whole day on things which relate to the body and you cannot give a couple of hours to the needs of the soul. You go often to the theater and you will not leave there till they send you away. But when you come to the church, you rush out before the divine mysteries are ended. Okay. Big words here, right? Should we keep going? This one tells us about how when we're at the liturgy, we are actually at the Last Supper. The sacrifice, no matter who offers it, be it Peter or Paul, is always the same as that which Christ gave his disciples and which priests now offer. The offering of today is in no way inferior to that which Christ offered because it is not men who sanctify the offering of today. It is the same Christ who sanctified his own. For just as the words which God spoke are the very same as those which the priest now speaks, so too the oblation is the very same. It's not symbolic. We actually believe we're at the Last Supper. And we actually believe that it is Christ who's given you communion, not the priest. And John Chrysostom speaks about that in another passage. He says, don't think it's the priest who's given you communion. It's Christ. And for us, it's not symbolic. And you'll see the effects of liturgy, Eucharist. And I've shared a story at the beginning. And there are a few others as well. But we're not going based on the stories. We're going based on faith. Okay? Alrighty. I said Eucharist means Thanksgiving. Alright? Complete the sentence. You know in school how you write the beginning of the sentence? Dot, dot, dot. Alright. The Lord be with you all. What do you reply? And with your spirit. This is the, what's called the anaphora, the beginning of the main part of the liturgy. 
Uh, we're not there on the handout. The priest says, lift up your hearts. What do you say? We have them with the Lord. We're focused, Abuna. We're here. We've left everything outside. We're, you know, we're, our hearts are where they're supposed to be. And the priest says, What's hidden in that word, Greek word? Eucharist. In English, let us give thanks to the Lord. You reply, it is meet and right. Meet means what? Fitting, worthy. Okay? So, Abuna pretty much says what? Let us Eucharist. What do you reply? Okay. It's a f good thing to do. Right? So, what's Abuna doing? He's getting your permission to do the Eucharist. He's like, the Lord be with you all. And you reply, and with your spirit, Abuna. Let us lift up our hearts. We have them with the Lord. They're there. Let us Eucharist. Okay. Let's go ahead. So, what does he do after he's taken your permission? He Eucharists. He gives thanks. How? Made and right. Made and right. Made and right. So it's fitting. Fitting and right. It is indeed made and right. What's he talking about? To give thanks. And what does he do for the whole liturgy? It's a huge section of thanksgiving. Oh, you the being, Master Lord of Truth, who created heaven and earth, the visible and invisible, the angels, the authorities, the cherubim, the seraphim. He's thanking God for his creation. Okay? Then what does he thank next? Who formed us, created us, for creating us. Place us in the paradise of joy. You have not abandoned us visited us you were incarnate you granted us salvation sorry granted us birth from on high um, you gave himself up to death you descended into Hades you rose from the dead on the third day you ascended to the heavens he's thanking God for his act of salvation and then what? you instituted for us this great mystery you took bread in your hand you broke you took the cup you tasted for every time you eat of this bread and drink of this cup what's he thanking God for? the Eucharist then for every time we eat of this bread, we offer unto you these gifts from what is yours, the descent of the Holy Spirit. And then, the peace of the church, thank you. The patriarch and the bishops, thank you. The safety of the world, thank you. The air of the, the, air of the heaven, the fruits of the earth, the vegetation, thank you. For the people that have went before us, so we pray for the people who have died, thank you. Okay? For leading us throughout the winter of your kingdom, thank you. And then, what does he say? Again, let us give thanks. So we see like a bit of a sandwich. The beginning, let us give thanks to the Lord. At the end, again, let us give thanks. What's in the middle? All these things that we're giving thanks for. That's in the liturgy of St. Basil. Okay? If we go to the liturgy of St. Gregory, similar thing, but instead of the Lord be with you all, he says, the love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion and gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You reply, and with your spirit, lift up your hearts. We have them with the Lord. Let us Eucharist, let us give thanks to the Lord. It is made and right. Then he says, made and right, made and right. It is fitting indeed and right that we praise you, bless you, worship you, glorify you. And then we describe who God is, remember week one, by using words that describe what he isn't. If you were here week one, you understand. Invisible, so you're not visible. Infinite, you're not bound by time. Or you're not bound by something. Without beginning, timeless, immeasurable, so you can't be measured incomprehensible, you can't comprehend you, unchangeable, we can't change you. So everything that he's not, okay? And then, you are he whom the angels praise, the principalities, the authorities, you have manifested to us the light of the Father, you have established for us the rising of the incorporeal among men, count us with the heavenly hosts, cherubim, seraphim, he's thanking for, similar thing, heaven. Then again, he says, you have raised heaven as a roof for me, for my sake you have bound the sea. For my sake, you have manifested the nature of animals, etc., etc. You have placed in me the gift of speech. It's a series of yous. You have manifested in me the tree of life. 
As a true father, you have labored with me. You have bound me with all the remedies. You have borne the oppression of the wicked. For my sake, you have not hidden your face from the shame of sinning. You have slain my sin in the womb. You have shown me manifestation of your coming, etc. So in the liturgy of St. Gregory, he's thanking God for all these things. So like that, the Eucharist, the liturgy, is one big act of thank you. Now, when do you say thank you to someone? Yeah, as a reaction. So thank you is a reaction. You don't just wake up and like you don't see someone go, hi, thank you. Okay, like they do something, they give you something. And once you realize and appreciate, then you say thank you. And the more you appreciate what it is, the more you say thank you. Right? So if you're a little kid and you give them a present, they don't realize because they're little kids and they just run away with it, break it, you know. But when you get older, like, oh, thank you. That's so thoughtful. And the older you get, like, thank you. You went through a lot of effort to make this for me. Like, I really appreciate it. Okay? Remember week one, we're speaking about worship. We said worship is a reaction that I give to God after I realize what he did for me. Some people think worship, God's up there and he's like, all right, worship. No, that's Islam, God. Okay? Our God is a loving God and worship is the natural reaction when you realize what God has done. And this is what the liturgy is. We're thanking God for all these things after we realize what, he, what he's done. When I confess my sins, when I repent, when I realize how much God has forgiven me and what he's done for me on the cross, how he's made me a new creation, my natural reaction is, thank you. Okay? <clears throat> this exp um, it's explained in this one. I won't read it for time. Okay. What about worthiness? Sometimes we say, I'm not worthy to have communion. Okay. Let's answer that question from the liturgy book first. I like tables, as you could see. I've outlined one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven, yeah. Seven sections of the liturgy where we could answer this question. In the prayer of preparation, as the priest is setting up the altar, okay, he says, You, O Lord, know my unworthiness. That's enough, you know, that's it. The first, one of the first things the priest says to God is, I am unworthy. That answers the question straight away. But we'll keep going. And unpreparedness and my lack of meetness for this your holy service. Grant to me that I might find grace and mercy at this hour, dot, 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 and send down to me strength from on high. So the priest is saying, I'm unworthy. Please help me. Next, he, he sets up the altar. He puts all the vessels and the veils on the altar. And then he says a prayer after preparation. You have called us, your lowly and unworthy servants, to be servants of your holy altar. O our master, you make us worthy in the power of your Holy Spirit. Very clear. Prayer of the veil. This is the prayer. Um, sometimes you'll notice after Abuna reads the gospel or does the sermon, he stands here and he says a prayer at the veil. And he says a prayer. This is a prayer that he says before he enters the altar and the sanctuary. And he's not leaving the sanctuary until communion. It's called the prayer of the veil. It's an inaudible prayer. It's beautiful. And he says in the liturgy of St. Basil, We ask you, our master, turn us not back when we put our hands on this awesome, as in full of awe, and bloodless sacrifice. For we put no trust in our righteousness, but in your mercy, whereby you have given life to our race. Then, prayer of reconciliation. Make us all worthy, our master, to greet one another holy kiss. The seven short litanies. Make us all worthy, our master, to partake of your holies. Right before the fraction. For he has also made us worthy now to stand in this holy place. Before the distribution of the mysteries. He says it privately. Make us worthy without falling into condemnation to partake of your holy body and your precious blood. Very clear? So is anyone worthy? 
No, we are made worthy. There are three, three, three things that we need. Okay? The first thing that we need is to first acknowledge that we are sick and we need healing. We call that confess that we are sinners are unworthy. So if I approach the Eucharist with pride and I think there's no problem with me, I'm not really approaching in a repentful manner. So first thing is I need to acknowledge that I need healing. The second thing, I need faith and belief. I need to believe that this is the body and the blood of Christ. And the third, we know that the Holy Spirit descends in the liturgy as after the part worship God in fear and trembling. We need the descent of the Holy Spirit to purify and change us. Worthiness was interpreted by many as true repentance and as preparation of the body and spirit. By body, the church has prescribed for us from the night before, you just don't do anything. You just stay still. Don't eat, don't drink, go to sleep, wake up, be ready for the liturgy. Okay? A 14th century Coptic author explains the meaning of worthiness as true faith in the body and blood of Christ, love and peace with all, baptism, repentance and confession. Emphasizing that God makes us worthy. And then you get the common thing which is, Abuna, I can't have communion because I haven't confessed in a long time. Okay? We've always been taught, don't deprive yourself of communion of your own doing. Okay? If you think you shouldn't have communion, don't make the decision. Ask your priest. It's very easy. You just go up to Abuna or send him a text message the night before. Hey, Abuna, for these reasons, I don't think I should have communion. What should I do? 99% of the time he'll say, go ahead. But never leave that decision up to yourself because you'll find that you might be too harsh and you're missing out on the healing. Okay? Third century father or fourth century, Theonas said, we should not suspend ourselves from the Lord's communion because we realize that we're sinners. Rather, more and more we should hasten to it with eagerness for healing of soul and purification of spirit. But with such humility and faith that we judge ourselves unworthy to receive so great a favor and seek it rather as a remedy for our wounds. Isn't that nice? Isn't that nice when you hear of the Eucharist as healing? That's awesome. As in full of awe, you know? That's really, really good when, like for me personally, I love it when I hear that. Every, emphasize, Eucharist is for people who are sinners for healing. Because I'm like, okay, I'm one of those. I need healing. Another writer. Whoever says, I do not want the Eucharist with the reason that they are a sinner and unworthy is like one who is ill, who does not want to take the medicine till they receive healing, after which they will take the medicine. Doesn't make any sense, does it? This is the sin of pride. Why is it the sin of pride? Because if, I'm, if I feel I'm bad, and I'm like, oh, I don't deserve to have communion, that means I feel I could make myself good again to have communion, which is pride. Because I think I could make myself good, which is impossible which makes the person not want the healing because they think that they could give themselves the healing. Okay? Alright. Are we all good? Keep going? Should I stop? Alright. <clears throat> Another quote from Sincere of Jerusalem which you could read. Okay. Let's talk about the effects, the efficacies of the Eucharist. I've taken this out of different prayers in the liturgy and then from different quotes. And then we'll finish off. The prayer of the prothesis, which is the prayer that Abuna says silently as they put the big cloth, the prosperian, on the altar, as you're singing, so, oh, and it keeps going, oh, well. That's what he says. And he says what? So imagine this is the altar. 
So the priest looking at the altar. The bread is here and the wine is here. He says, and he points, Show your face upon this bread and upon this cup, which we have set upon this, your priestly table. Bless them, sanctify them, purify them and change them, in order that on one hand, this bread may indeed become your holy body, and on the other hand, the mixture which is in this cup indeed your precious blood, and may they become for all of us, with all the hand movements, Look at this. Communion, healing, salvation for our souls, bodies, and spirits. Straight away, the church is teaching us what the Eucharist is. It's communion, it's healing, and salvation for our souls, bodies, and spirits, for a whole person. It's also purity. Fraction prayer of St. Basil. Purify us also, our Master, from our sins. Purify our souls, our bodies, our spirits, our hearts, our eyes, our understanding, our thoughts, and our consciences. Okay? So if you want to be made clean... Have the Eucharist. Another prayer, Ligia of St. Cyril, it's before communion. So that in this manner in purity, we may partake of these pure mysteries and what? Be purified, brought to completion, all of us in our souls, bodies, and spirits, having become partakers of the body, partakers of the form, and partakers in the succession of your Christ. In the confession, the priest says, given for us for salvation, remission of sins, and eternal life. Look at all these things we get from the Eucharist. Now, can you get any of these from a youth meeting? Or from a social event? No, youth meeting, social events, teaching has a place in the church. But the central place is the Eucharist. Okay? If you're a servant, or for your own life, how do I know if my ministry is on track? If the people that we are serving are being more drawn to the Eucharist, okay, so it's two actions. If they're being more drawn to the Eucharist, and then they're being drawn out of the Eucharist and living it out. And I'll explain what that means. That means our ministry is on track. Sometimes we're like, oh, we got a good turnout in the youth meeting today. Yes. That's okay, because you want to serve the people. But what's our ultimate goal? You know? If people on their own, like there's a bishop in Egypt, he passed away. It's Bishop of Malawi, Amber Biman, passed away in the 80s. He said, signs of a successful youth ministry, growth in the participation of the sacraments. Really important. So if I am growing in my yearning and participation for the Eucharist, and I'm growing in what happens when I leave, in who I am, I'm on track. And if I'm a servant, if the people that I'm serving are growing in that, we're on track. You know, sometimes we've got to ask ourselves, are we focused on the right thing or something else? Because the Eucharist changes lives. And many... If you ask any, uh, like some of the servants have been in the servants for a while, some of the older priests, tell them, give me an example of how the Eucharist has changed lives. And they'll tell you first-hand experience of people that have just, you know, done nothing more than come to communion and their life has changed over time because God is working in them. I'm not ignoring the role of visitations, teaching, Sundays, all that's beautiful. But to what end? And then what, what the Eucharist also gives us, the last one from the liturgy that I've picked, is joy. It makes us happy. Sorry, it makes us joyful. As Abuna is... Do you remember the part of the liturgy how the priest grabs the pattern and puts it on his head at the end? He's doing two, two silent prayers. Okay? One of them says, Our mouth is filled with gladness and our tongue with rejoicing, with joy, from our partaking of your mortal mysteries, O Lord. So what does the Eucharist give us? Joy. What we're called to do is we need to keep this joy when we walk out of church. We'll get to that in a sec. I said to speak about some of the early church fathers, a few very quickly. St. Ignatius of Antioch, 2nd century. 
So see that you obey the bishop and the presbytery with an undivided mind, breaking one with the same bread, which is the medicine of immortality and the antidote to prevent us from dying, that we should live forever in Jesus Christ. Medicine of immortality. Okay? Yeah, I don't want to use those words, but you could, if you want to think about it. Like. I want to bring up something else, but... Yeah, yeah. It's just, um, from a person's point of view, it seems a bit like, um, or a sentence. How do you refute that? Like, when they say to you, these kind of actions are not, um, the medieval, I don't know, I don't know, I'm just trying not to do that. Uh, some, I was trying to say, like, for example, if you were to bring a mate into church, and they see all the sensing, the, the, the processions, yeah. the vestments, it's like, oh, it's a bit weird. Let <coughs> okay. So, uh, Sorry, I don't mean, I know it's like... Yeah, 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 of course. No. I'm trying to formulate how do we respond. Yeah. Sometimes we're a little bit insecure with our own church, me included. Yeah, but I'm maybe talking about myself. Yeah. Okay. When you go to, um, has anyone been to a dawn service for Anzac Day? What do they do there? Yeah. Flame, trumpet, procession, flag raising, ritual. When you go to the footy finals, what do they do? They walk out in a row, they stand opposite each other, sing an anthem. There's a like, at the end, there's the awarding of medals. Yeah. So ritual action isn't foreign to us. Yeah. Also, this is what we're doing in the liturgy is we're pretty much repeating what God did at the Last Supper. We take bread. Yeah. With, with, with more added because, for example, we use incense. Of course, various reasons why we use incense, but one of them, for example, at least in a contemplative way, when John, the writer of the book of Revelations, saw heaven, he saw 24 priests with vestments and incense. So we're in heaven to remind people we have incense. Okay? We have readings because we need to receive the word of God through our ears before we receive him in our mouths. We have praise as we pray together. We have chanting because uh, that's how we express our, our joy. So, for example, when you come to church and it's Easter and you hear the Christos and Esti, like, I'm joyful. And when you come to Passion Week and you hear Thok Tetigom or Golgotha, you know, it helps connect. But you realize there's never a sorrowful liturgy. We don't have any mournful liturgies. Even Holy Thursday is not a mournful liturgy. Liturgies are never mournful. Liturgies are always a celebration of joy. That's why, we, like, Father Alexander Schmemann talks about this a lot. He says, if you came to my house... And we're celebrating something. What would I do at home? I'll take the best cutlery out, the best plates, candles, put a nice cloth over, light a scented candle, you know. So when we go to church, what do we do? Put some nice candles on the altar, get beautiful um, fabrics to put on the altar. The priests wear their vestments. All these things are an expression of joy. We have symbols, we have processions. All that is an expression of one big joy. Could I um, could I add something on um, answering Protestant about yeah. the Eucharist and stuff? What Protestants don't have, the apostolic churches have, all apostolic churches, is that apostolic succession. That you can, like a timeline from the Pope to St. Mark in the Coptic Church. Yeah. Right? In the 40 days, no. They don't have a meaning for the whole Eucharist because they're all about our oh, Reformation, everything, right? In the 40 days that Jesus Christ ascended and people, yeah, he, he 
yeah, he, before he ascended, he was risen and he was in the flesh and everything. He gave all of this, whatever we do every single Sunday, he gave it to his disciples. The kingdom of heaven, we said, the kingdom of heaven is among us, humanity. Like the literal kingdom of heaven. Like while we're talking about how everything that we do in the Eucharist is, it's all literal. They don't have that, so they don't understand that. They're not complete. No matter how much you're going to argue and answer them back, they're never going yeah, to fully comprehend it. Thanks, Steph, for that. And it's important to remember as well that the liturgy went through a lot of transitions. So the liturgy of today is not what it looked like for the early church. They used to eat first, remember? And it was probably a lot shorter than what we have today. And along the way, we've added bits and pieces, which is okay. If anything, like... I don't know how this will be said, but, you know, like... In a world that's fast-paced, isn't it nice for you to come to a place where the church is slow down? Yeah. Spend two hours doing one thing, you know, that's not youth-focused. That's important, I think, in today's world. Um, <clears throat> St. Cyprian, there's a quote there. St. John Chrysostom again. When the words say, this is my body, be convinced of it and believe it and look at it with eyes of the mind. For Christ did not give us something tangible, but even in his tangible things... All is intellectual. How many now say, I wish I could see his shape, his appearance, his garments, his sandals. I wish Jesus would appear for me. He, look what he says. Only look, you see him, you touch him, you eat him. Okay? So, for example, a lot of us want to visit Jerusalem, which is great. But don't forget what happens every Sunday. Okay? Or every Eucharist. Um, this is about faith. We'll read this one. Cyril of Jerusalem. When the Master himself has declared and said of the bread, this is my body, who will still dare to doubt? So if Jesus said it, it's true. He was saying. When he is himself, our warrant is saying, this is my blood. Who will ever waver and say it is not his blood? Do not think of the elements as mere bread and wine. They are, according to the Lord's declaration, body and blood. Though the perception suggests the contrary, let faith be your stay. Instead of judging the matter by taste, let faith give you an unwavering confidence that you have been privileged to receive the body and the blood of Christ. Faith. Pure faith. Okay? What are the redemptive fruits of the Eucharist? This is by Coptic Bishop or Archbishop Basilios of Jerusalem in the 20th century. He says three things. We have oneness and communion with the Lord. And he quotes John 6, who eats my flesh and drinks my blood and abides in me in him. And St. Cyril of Jerusalem, which when St. Cyril says, Thus do we become Christ-bearers, his body and blood being distributed through our members. Christ-bearer is Christopher. We are all Christophers, bearers of Christ. Okay. Second, growth in the spiritual life in Christ Jesus. And third, a pledge of eternal life, the medicine of immortality. Okay? Um, big bit of a quote from Father Alexander. Okay, turn the page. Then, so we've spoken a bit. This is a huge topic, you know, we could do a whole series on this. Um, <clears throat> we'll finish off by talking about what happens when we leave. Okay? We have to live out what we've received. I'm just going to read the last couple of sentences at the top there from the previous quote this is the sacrament of forgiveness this is by father alexander the sacrament of unity and love the sacrament of the kingdom and as we leave the church and face our lives so the world's not going to change 
My problems might still exist, but what's changed? I have changed. As we leave the church and face our life, the Eucharist remains with us as our secret joy and certitude, the source of inspiration and growth, the victory that overcomes evil, the presence which makes our whole life life in Christ. Look at this. Remains our secret joy and certitude. We're certain about it. If you ever met a friend who's at the beginning of their relationship, okay? So a guy who's getting to know who, would, who, might, who might become his wife, okay? And they're still in the beginning, okay? When the birds are chirping and the, the flowers are out and everything's nice, they have this nearly a twinkle in their eye, if you want to say it. A bit of a twinkle. You know what I'm talking about? Some of the married people here, okay? They have some certain joy or certitude that there is someone. This is a, a deeper version of that. Okay? I've had communion. There's this joy inside me. The certitude that I'm going to carry out. I'm united with God. Okay? My, like I want to says, my first, my last, my everything. And I'm going to go out and I'm a source of inspiration, of growth, of hope. Okay? Father Lev Gillet, who's one of my favorite authors. Uh, we have to read this whole quote. But it's really nice. We ask of Christ that his body and blood be given to us by his hand. We believe that through communion we receive Christ. Yet we must become capable with eyes of faith and love to see the Lord Jesus himself come to us and, as he did with his apostles, present us his holy gifts through which he offers himself. It is not the priest who gives us communion beyond the priest. It is the Lord who both offers and is offered, who draws near to us personally. Do we actually behold him as he comes to us? Do we see him hold out to us the bread and the wine that have become himself, that have become the body and the blood? Do we hear, again, the word secret? Do we hear the secret individual word which he will perhaps speak to us in that moment and which should direct our very life? What's that secret word? All of us have something that we would love to hear from God. Okay? For example, someone might need to hear from God something like, you are loved. And when someone realizes that, they might like change their whole life. So break down in tears. And we, well, you see someone goes, I realize that God loves me. And their life changes. So someone says, you are loved. Or they might need to hear, don't worry, it will be okay. Or you are forgiven. Or I accept you. This isn't all... We're not talking hypothetical here. If I come with faith and humility to the Eucharist, I can hear this. I'm not saying you're going to hear a voice, but you can walk out. You can say, I am loved. How do you know? I am. Prove it to me. I can't. I am. You know, like if I go to you, does your mum love you? You say yes. I go prove it. You're like, oh, she does this. I go, yeah, but other people do that. How do you know your mum loves you? You know your mum loves you. You've experienced it. No one else can talk you through that. Okay? And then look at this. All those who receive communion today should themselves distribute these holy gifts to others around them. That means by their behavior, by their words, which should by no means sermonize. So I'm not going to go Bible bash people and give sermons. But offer a discreet and loving witness. They are called to radiate the grace which has come upon them. So when I walk out of the Eucharist and I've had joy, purity, salvation, healing, forgiveness of sins, and I walk out and I'm still down without any hope, despaired. What's the point of life? What's the point of all of this? I'm not really carrying the joy of the church. You know? But if I walk out of the liturgy 
and some realize, man, you're different every time you come out. Why are you happier? When you go to work on Monday morning, everyone's drained. You're like, what's wrong with you? Why are you happy? Why are you smiling like that? Okay? When you're going through a tough time, but we'll get through it. Why are you different? This is what he means. Carry or distribute the holy gifts by my behavior. So which means that I have to cherish that gift that I have received after the Eucharist. Got to watch what, what comes out of my mouth. <laughs> I saw this here. First week I was here. So here we give out the, the baraka at the back because of how the church doors work, the flow. Gave out all the baraka. So 10 minutes doing that. Come back. I found a little girl sitting here praying that gbeya after a two-hour liturgy. Okay? Lovely girl. Okay? She's probably in primary school. And I'm like, that's awesome. She's preserving what just happened. Okay? So what's a little thing that we could do? When you have communion, before getting up, we're just going to have the, uh, the urbana straight away. Have a seat. Just take it in. Just sit down for a bit. Close your eyes. Take it in. Do the prayer after communion. Take a moment to pause, to take it in, to realize what just happened. And when you leave, be in, inwardly quiet. Just watch out what happens for the next half hour, hour, for the next day, whatever you're able, based on the circumstances of your day, of course. So that's when I leave, and the night before, I should do something to prepare. If I, for whatever circumstance, I have to be out of home, when you get home, try to do something a bit different before you go to sleep. In the morning of the liturgy, avoid certain things so that your mind is fresh. Very easy practical steps. For example, avoid Facebook in the morning. There's nothing wrong with Facebook, but if I'm looking at Facebook in the morning, when I walk into church, it's going to be in my mind. Just avoid everything in the morning. Come to church fresh. The same way your body is, your tummy is fasting. Let your eyes fast, your ears fast. Come in fresh. When you come in, what do you do with your phone? Not silent. Off or flight mode. Because if it's on silent and it vibrates, your mind's going to be like, who messaged me? Is it important? Oh my God, it's an emergency. Not that any other time it's an emergency, but only then. Okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> turn that off. Find the spot where you could concentrate on your own. Don't worry about these things. Pick up a book, okay? Read the book, follow the words step by step. When you get to a word that you like, stop, pray about it. When you are distracted, just close your eyes, start again. When you're completely distracted, just start praying for people, you know? Bring a bit of effort and just watch how you walk out. And something that one of my, our youth servants told us is always pray the night before the liturgy and tell God, please God, let me experience something in the liturgy. What that is, we leave up to God. Um. The life of St. Anthony or St. Anastasius, he says that St. Anthony on his way to church, his father had just died, and he, on his way he was thinking about his identity of the spirit. And the spirit was walking to church, and then when he got to church, he heard the message. Mm. So the and we happen to have a copy of the life of Anthony here. What are the odds? Let's see if we could find it. One I prepared earlier. No, I'm sure you're right. We'll just get the exact words. Oh, uh, yeah. Paragraph two. 
After the death of his parents, he was left alone with one younger sister. His age was about 18 or 20, and he had the responsibility of caring for both his home and his sister. Now, it was not six months since the death of his parents, and as was his custom, he was walking on his way to the Lord's house, and he was thinking to himself and reflecting how the apostles gave up everything and followed the Savior, and how those in the book of Acts sold their possessions and brought them and laid them at the apostles' feet for distribution to the needy, and how greater hope was laid up for them in heaven. Pondering over these things he entered the church and it happened the gospel was being read etc nice thanks Sharif thanks Sharif no that was nice okay last quote sorry we're a bit late last quote this then is the aim of the liturgy that we should return to the world with the doors of our perceptions cleansed we should return to the world after the liturgy seeing Christ in every human person especially in those who suffer. The Christian is the one who, wherever he or she looks, everywhere sees Christ and rejoices in Him. We are to go out then from the liturgy and see Christ everywhere. You know, um, you know when, uh, again, we'll use the marriage example because I think it's a very good example when talking about relationship between us and God. When two people are in love, everything in the world becomes about that person. Oh, that smells like him or her. He likes that food. That's her favorite color. Okay, why? Extreme love there. Same way, we've united with Christ at the banquet, this beautiful act, so I walk out and I see Christ everywhere. And what he's saying is when you walk out, live what's happened here. So you've just had joy, carry that joy to someone else. You've just had hope, carry that hope to someone else. You just had peace, carry that peace. You know, we greet one another with a holy kiss. Who do you, go greet everyone in the Kononia with a holy kiss. Then greet your family with a holy kiss. Then greet your workmates with a holy kiss. And then the week wears you out. You get a bit exhausted. So what do you do? Come back to the Eucharist. Okay? That's just under Sorry, okay? Sorry if that took a bit long. That was the... I told you I got carried away. We should, yeah. <laughs> Any additions or questions on that? St. Peter tells us that we become partakers of the divine nature, but we become sons of God by adoption, meaning that we don't take on timelessness, we don't become ineffable, we don't become infinite, but we become sons of God by adoption. And that's what happens through baptism. Through baptism, we become sons and daughters of God through adoption. Sonship, as they say. Yeah. The other day I was with a friend who's not, not Egyptian at all and talking about a certain belief of ours and because it's in the Bible, you know, and then he's like, but the Bible's not even written by, let's say God is, it's not even written by God, you know, it's written by the church, so surely it's going to be, I don't think it's a full defense to say it's in the Bible, but the Bible wasn't really written by God himself, just written it, by the church, it, obviously uh, it's going to yeah. represent things the way the church wants it. Okay, so when we say written by the church, we mean that the Holy Spirit has inspired people to write the books that are in the Bible, but the church decided which books go, for instance, in the New Testament and which don't go through in the New Testament. They decided on the canon. So, of course, the Bible is 
the word of God, 100%. But the church had to make a decision about which gospels go in and which gospels don't go in. For example, like you hear of the Gospel of Judas. The church knew about that in the early centuries and they knew that it doesn't fit in with the other gospels. Doesn't preach Christ crucified and risen. Doesn't go along with the faith that the church was holding. Also got to remember that the first book of the New Testament was written a few decades after the ascension of Christ. So what were they doing for those decades? So when we say that the church, inverted commas, wrote the Bible, chose which books go together, it's to emphasize that when we read the Bible, it's read through the lens of the church. So it's not read for personal interpretation, apart from the passages which clearly have a personal meaning. But for example, when you read about baptism, is it symbolic or is it real? Well, the early church from the beginning has read it to be real. Priesthood. Symbolic or real? No, it's real. Is that sort of where you're going? I think the argument is that if you're talking to a non-Christian, you cannot use the Bible as a point of reference because it's not a point of reference in common. Like what you were saying. Sorry, that But there is a common point of reference, right? So you can't say, but it's in the Bible for someone who doesn't take the Bible as the word of God. Um, I don't think it's I don't think, I don't think unless you both agree that the Bible is a 